ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Competition is Welcome to another episode of Hard in the Paint with David Grubb and I. Welcome back to the show, Daniel Lust, sports law attorney, um, and generally just man about social media. He's everywhere now and host of the Conduct Dutch, co-host of the Conduct Detrimental Podcast, um, which you can catch anywhere you get your podcast. Um, I love it. I think it's really interesting. It's one of those topics and subjects that just doesn't get really covered enough as the integration of sports law and all these things that are going on right now really are serious topics that we should all understand a little bit better. Daniel, welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to have you, my man. Thank you, Dave. Speaking of loving podcasts, I, I saw uh, a little birdie told me that you had a thousand downloads for your, your, uh, your new podcast in just a couple weeks. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, we're doing okay. So <laughs> I, I was surprised. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy. Um, but that, it helps to have great content and people like you provide that for me. Um, and so I appreciate every time that we've gotten to talk, man. For sure. And uh, you know, we, you and I were talking offline, some serious issues. Um, but uh, I'm happy to get it down and just really explain what, what could be there. I mean, it's a, if it's a flash in the pan, it's one thing, but people need to understand at least what's on the table. So they're not uh, alarmed if there is no PAC 12 uh, for the upcoming uh, NCAA. Right. So let's go right to that number of players from the Pac-12 teams um, issued an open letter in the Players' Tribune. They outlined uh, some demands for this season, or they say that they are seriously considering sitting out this season. Those demands included increased safety measures, medical insurance for six years after the end of their eligibility, permanent civic engagement task force to address social injustices, um, asking for the league to distribute 50% of sports revenue within the conference um, evenly to the players. And then also there is some very um, strong language about overcompensation of coaches within there as well. Um, first, let's talk about what it means for them to put these out there in the public. So I guess first and foremost, you have to, I mean, we can get into the nuances of what they're actually demanding, but the timeframes are very important here. Why was this rush? I'm going to, I'm going to say rush and I can kind of explain it, but why was this put out on a, you know, on a random, I think it was a Saturday or maybe it was Sunday, but um, just kind of have to understand how the PAC 12 works. The earliest date that mandatory activities can start is actually today, August 3rd. Um, and then the earliest that training camp can start is August 17th. So that's kind of the, the country as to why this had to come out now. And, and where do those dates come from? When the Pac-12 agreed to this um, conference-only system, um, they came out with those dates, and they, they let the schools kind of figure out when camp would start and when mandatory activities would start, but the earliest that could possibly be was August 3rd. So they wanted to get this out ahead of time. So that, you know, that's, I guess, an important piece of the puzzle because, um, you know, I think it goes without saying, a boycott is a boycott. They're threatening right. not to play until they get not, not just one of these, two of these, but everything. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, at least where my, my legal mind kind of takes me, the, the first one, I mean, there's obviously, they're all, they're all very big. 
But six years of, of health insurance, I just I find that that one just kind of stood out to me for whatever reason. The the mechanics, the finances, and we'll just say the overall um, realistic ability to enforce that in like a week is just it's not really possible. No, so <laughs> it's not. I I just I don't you know I, it's a great cause and they have a lot of great things in there, but it's just not realistic. So if they're going to say we refuse to play college football until you give us health insurance for six years. That's a process that legitimately will take months, if not a year, to find the right provider to get the right rates. So it's not really, not really realistic to me. But I, I think overall, you know, just on a, on a broad brushstroke, some really good stuff in here. Um, I think the only, the only part that I'm concerned about just from a legal perspective is the possible Title IX ramifications which although these are all very good causes they're going after and they, and they want to split the revenue pie in each sport, you know, 50% to the players, 50% to the school for each sport. Um, that's almost on its face, Violet of, of uh, title nine. So, um, and I'm happy to get into it. Just, I, I definitely saw those two things early realistically time-wise it's, I don't really think it's realistic. And then you can't have an all or nothing thing. If one of the things violates, you know, title nine at the end of the day. Let's talk about Title IX because I think that there are going to be a lot of challenges to, for Title IX and to Title IX because of what's happened with the coronavirus uh, pandemic. We've already seen sports eliminated at certain schools. We're going to see schools that eliminate their athletic programs entirely. We're going to see schools that shut down. So certainly there's going to be a decrease, most likely an opportunity for women on, on just the surface. Um, now you add in this financial component here – Title IX is, 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 is in trouble. I mean, it's just there's a, a lot of challenges for it. Yeah, I mean, and for those that aren't familiar with it, I mean, there's, there's really – you can think of Title IX as essentially women are allowed – women's sports are allowed to have the same rights as men. So if there's a men's basketball team, there's got to be a women's basketball team. And, and to some extent, it's obviously not going to be an exact dollar-for-dollar dollar science, but, you know, um, women's sports are supposed to have the same rights and opportunities as, as male sports. Now. Uh, we've talked about this, I think, on a prior show, Dave, like if there's a world where um, the NCAA turns capitalist and the Nikes can just give all of their money to the highest marketable, you know, marketability athletes, be it Zion and whatnot, that money is not going to go to the, the women's sports. Just objectively, sports that make the most money in, in college landscape is really football one, basketball two, and then everything else. So, you know, uh, if you were to create a capitalistic world, Certain sports, including some men's sports, would get left behind, but the women's sports largely would be affected by this. So where this comes into play with this, um, we'll say this list of demands that's in this, um, this letter for the Players' Tribune, um, it's an interesting concept. Every sport, uh, they're asking, 50% of the revenue goes to the players of that respective sport, and then 50% goes to the school. Now, in a vacuum, that makes a lot of sense, but uh, we, don't, we can't really litigate this, and we can't look at it in a vacuum. Because if there are certain sports, be it even women's basketball, there's reports that that doesn't make a profit at schools. At a number of schools, yeah. Almost, almost every school. Like maybe um, UConn, Tennessee, right, you know, those few exceptions, right. Right. Um, but other than that, what's 50% of zero is zero. Um, and all of a sudden, then the budgets of these different programs become zero or become much less because they're all going to the men's program. So. Um, you're, you're really running afoul of Title IX, and, and you know, I'm just just pointing it out. I, you know, I watch uh, men's co- I watch men's basketball, I watch football, um, and I watch the the women's basketball when it's when the tournament is on. But other than that, I don't really watch any other sports. But 
those are, you know, the main two sports are eating up all of the pie of revenue. So you're walking into a Title IX violation right away. Um, so again, I mean, I, I just kind of looking at it. If this was a play by Pac-12 and um, the athletes, if sometimes in law, I, I ask for, you know, you ask for the stars and you aim and you kind of land on the moon. If you ask for a big, you know, huge ask and you settle at something a little less than that, that's fine. But realistically, the, the players can't uh, expect to have this implemented, especially when, you know, uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, I know you and I have spoke about this, but fair play to play in California. The California legislator gave the NCAA four years to figure it out. These Pac-12 athletes are giving the NCAA about 14 days to figure it out, which is just, just not realistic. No, um, but I think they know um, legitimately that, that these things are not realistic but this is part of, I think, a long game in which that you were trying to bring these thing, issues to the forefront, show them that they're urgent, and also flex some type of power that, hey, we are the product um, and you need us. And this is whatever leverage they have, especially considering these schools are really focused on the financial implications of not having football this season. Um, I, I hear you. And I think if this was, if there was a time to use the leverage, it's right now, it's on the verge of the season. And when there's, you know, every, we, we've talked about this too. I remember you and I spoke last time I was on with uh, like Baton Rouge and Ed Orgeron saying that the economy could fall apart. So if you just play out that argument and you take it to all the different PAC 12 schools, be it, you know, the Oregon's of the world, the Stanford's um, maybe those economies are really going to be affected by football. Um, what I'm kind of curious, I know um, there, there was no specific names that were mentioned on this letter. Um, I was trying to look for it because I just I thought it was important to see exactly uh, what schools were represented um, and then really what what kind of level of players uh, and then really the number of players. So I saw reports that it could be a couple hundred. Um, and then I saw reports that, uh, you know, that couple hundred might be a high number. So it's important to see, right, if it's literally every college football player, that's that's a lot of leverage. Um, but if it's a handful of players at each team and they're the backup punter and the backup center, there's going to be someone willing to take their spot. And that's the kind of blowback I've seen on Twitter. You know, if you don't want to play and you don't feel safe playing, this is college football. There is always going to be someone willing to take your spot. And it's, you know, an unfortunate reality. Um, but that's why in, in the NFL, a strike, a labor strike is only as strong as all of football that doesn't participate. Right. If, for certain teams that play, right? Um, that's a little bit different. So I, I'm curious to see where, where that goes. And then um, I know Dave, you and I spoke offline. There is a report that's trickling out of um, Washington State that five players that were reportedly as part of this um, this letter have already been dismissed from the football team. So I don't think they're verified reports, just but I've seen verified accounts talking about it, saying mm -hmm. that they've heard through sources. Um, so that's at least one shoe to, shoe to drop here. I mean, it, it's. It's not like you're in a union, right? You're not protected from, from these type of acts. You're kind of, you're not really an employee, obviously, but uh, your, your scholarship is a privilege. It's, it's not a right. So the extent the, you know, um, the schools want to take this right away from these players, um, this is not a Northwestern situation, right? There is no union to protect them. So uh, you, you do have to worry about those ramifications. So in that, you know, part of the discussion was about um, no penalty transfers, um, allowing players that one time to transfer or if there's a, um, some evidence of abuse or, you know, just this situation is not healthy for this player. They need to go 
that's part of it. Um, and certainly a discussion that there sh- that should be had as well. Um, and then I also look at it too, is you have these players this past weekend and the sec had a big meeting between uh, its players representatives and the, the conference commissioner and some other uh, people from the, the league. The players asked if it's worth it straight up. Greg Sankey says there are no guarantees in life. That answer in and of itself, I think makes players feel a little more hesitant. You had a representative from Texas A&M saying our whole team is worried, but the administrator of your conference is saying life. Hey, life is a risk. They say positive tests are a given and uh, breakouts are going to happen. And then you see the footage, and I don't know if you saw this this weekend, of LSU players trying on their new new helmets with these shields uh, to protect them from breathing. And they're saying, I can't breathe in this. It feels like I'm inside a Ziploc bag. This just doesn't seem like it's going to work. And it seems like the players are trying to find anything they can to at least push this back until there's something healthier in place. Do you know where um, outbreaks are not occurring, Dave? NBA bubble. In the WNBA in the bubble. And the WNBA bubble, the NHL, NHL bubble. bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, and guess where? These, these bubbles are not centrally located, and they're not, they're not happening in Utah where the women's special soccer NWSL played. Um, bubbles, these controlled universes, um, doesn't matter where they are. They can be in Canada with, with very low, uh, we'll say low um, infection levels, or they can be in the hotbed of Florida. Um, there are no positive NBA tests. So, um, you know, we, I've been talking about this for a couple months now. We didn't, I, I thought at some point, you know, just knowing what the law is, you have to provide a reasonably safe venue for, uh, if, you're, if you're a league or you're just any type of event, uh, entity holding an event, you have to provide a reasonably safe venue. I originally thought that these bubbles were overkill. Like they're just going above and beyond. It's great. It's really safe. They're very expensive. I don't think that's someone's legal responsibility, but I did couch it as saying, this is unprecedented. We don't know what's reasonably safe until it actually comes into play. And we, we can see what's reasonable and what's not reasonable. We now know to some extent, right? We're now how many, four months into the pandemic, almost five months into the pandemic. We have some idea of what reasonably safe is. And we know what's not reason, what's, what's reasonably not safe. Um, and just to, I guess, exhibit A, Major League Baseball have two teams that are, you know, today I just saw the news that the, the Cardinals have up to 13 positive tests. The Marlins are at 17 tests. And there is no equivalent of that level of outbreak in any of these bubbles. So my, my two cents here, outbreaks are uh, in the real world, maybe, you know, if you're in close quarters, inevitable. But they're not inevitable in a bubble. Um, I'm not sure why we're sticking to these, these tight, you know, timeframes to start on August 17th, whatever we want to say. The football has the money and they're so dependent on, on this for their economy. Why is there, why is the term, again, I know I spoke with this last time, why is the term bubble not being thrown around? And I think this is, this is really, if there is one time for players to use their leverage to try to get these questions asked and to have these conversations like we're having right now, this was the time to do it before players have to report and throw themselves in harm's way. Because couldn't you see, let's say the Big Ten says, we're going to play all of our games in Chicago. We're gonna, that's where we're going to be. We're only playing games on Northwestern's campus in Evanston. We're going to book hotels for the players, whatever, and the staff. They can do remote learning from there. Set your schedules. 
They're all here. We're going to test them on a regular basis. We limit who can come in and come out. It seems like the cost wouldn't be prohibitive in that case because you're not requiring an entire $150 million bubble. What you're requiring is these kids are staying right here and they all have laptops. So other than that, you got Wi-Fi access, laptops, and clothes. It doesn't seem like financially it should be cost prohibitive for conferences bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars to make this happen. It, it should not. Uh, by, we're by talking about three means. months. That's basically I, what we're talking about here. Right. And I, I'm just, just playing, I don't know, I'm just trying to try to call it like I see it. I don't know how much safer playing an in-conference schedule is going to be. Like, there's still some level of travel involved. <laughs> so, I, what do you, shave like one percentage point off of the risk? Like, and that's congrats. what baseball's tried. That's what baseball Congre- tried to do a regional schedule, right. and it hasn't worked. Let's have more in-division games. It doesn't really matter. I mean, my, I, you know, I just kind of, on a higher level, I mean, there's some portions of the, of the, of the country that are bigger hotspots, be it Miami. So maybe you take, you know, maybe you have certain schools that are moved out of those hot zones. You put them in a bubble. But to just say, you know, we're going to have everything exactly normal, but we're just going to play in-conference games, I don't think does anything. Um, and if this is, you know, I, we, we would be remiss if we didn't point out that this is an economic equation. But you know what's going to cost the schools more money? No college football. Zero. Um, and that's going to harm the, the lives and the, and the growth of these student athletes. So why not invest in the bubble? Guess what? It, it, right now, Dave, I think it's like five for five. And the only non-bubble is on the verge of getting shut down, Major League Baseball. So it's not rocket science. You know, you just have to pour those investments uh, into a pr- proper safety protocol. And this, the proof is in the pudding at this point. The bubble, um, whether you want to buy it or not, I mean, that's, that's, that's where the, uh, the no cases have been so far. And it seems to me also there would be corporate interests willing to sponsor a bubble that, you know, the MetLife bubble at this campus for the ACC, the whatever bubble I could college. If they were smart, they'd be thinking about there's ways to make this money back by having these kids together. You have it. It's and PR wise. It's a thing. You could make it work so much better by saying, Hey, we've gone the extra step and taking care of these players health. You can still you can have all the things you want on their academic progress. Look, they're going to class, they're doing these things. Dot dot dot. In the long term, if you're the NCAA, when you're already dealing with severe image crisis, why continue to put yourself in this light where it seems as if and you're basically telling kids, hey, some of you are going to die or some of you are going to get really sick, and you just got to get used to it. That that to me seems like once it happens, I don't know how they get out from under it from a PR standpoint, but then the legal issues will only begin to flood in after that. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think, you know, just going back to, to the, the PAC 12 letter, I mean, they were asking for, and you know, they were asking for um, all waivers to be deemed void that, that the athlete should have the right to sue the schools should they get infected. So just kind of on a, on a first, first note, PAC 12 is not really going to agree to that so easily. I mean, it just, we, we've had this conversation about waivers, um, about Buckeye pledges, whatever you want to call them. If the athletes are saying, we want to sue you, you have to let us before we get onto the field. I just, I also don't think that's that realistic. The schools don't, I mean, they have a right not to allow them to, to this. Uh, I mean, I guess I should take a step back. The, Dave, you and I are here. We're talking about this. All these, these student athletes are watching the news. There is an, an, an implicit assumption of the risk, whether or not you sign a, a waiver at a certain point. 
But if these athletes are kind of signaling, we're going to sue you, and we want to make sure we have the crystal clear ability to sue right. you, right? That's that's the only way to read it. It's not the best look for those student athletes. So I, you know, I get concerned. I mean, this is we're you know we're preaching to the, our, the respective choir. We we both right. agree on this. I'm just concerned if if these complaints at some point fall on deaf ears, right? Pac-12, you know, they're, they're all threatening to boycott. It turns out it's like 100 guys across eight different, you know, 12 different schools. So maybe about 10, 10 guys a school. That's not really that much, right? You could hit right. 100 with having, you know, and these rosters in college football are big. They're, you know, 100 guys, backup punter, fourth string quarterback. Okay, like you, you those guys lose their, st- their spots and they'll replace with some other guys. So, you know, uh, again, I, I, I don't think it's, I think it's very important. Two things can happen here that are that would change football. Number one, there is a real boycott with a significant amount of players, which there's no Pac-12, which right. would be interesting. Okay, and the other one is that there is Pac-12 football, but 150, we'll say 200 players are just kicked off the team because they went against uh, the school, which also is it would be unheard of. So important to watch. I mean, I, I don't think this is getting enough play in the mainstream media, even if it's a calculated high-risk bluff. There's going to be ramifications on the player level. You can't just attack the attack the conference and get away with it when you're not protected by a union. Going back to that, 2014, Northwestern tries to organize a union. The NLRB at the National Labor Relations Board, for those that don't know, was was really accepting of them at first. And they said, okay, we'll make a ruling. 18 months go by, and then they say, we don't have the ability to govern this. This is a private institution. If we can't, if we make a ruling, it doesn't apply to public institutions. A lot of legal scholars at the time, observers, were confused by that decision, felt like it was something that was unprecedented for the NLRB to do. Now, here we are six years later. Is the, are the conditions any better for players if they try to unionize? Probably not. I mean, I don't know necessarily what's changed, um, you know, and I think the, the backdrop of all of this, um, if anything, I mean, the one kind of breadcrumb we might have that the NCAA is, is seeing some, we'll say, uh, some leaks in the, in the wall. Um, the NCAA in the name, image and likeness contest is asking for um, an antitrust exemption. So um, there have been scholars and myself included, um, not that I would, um, not that I would call myself a, a scholar, um, but the, what the NCAA does, it looks a lot like an antitrust violation, just from not letting players earn, earn money and, and, you know, um, but, but neither here nor there. If the NCAA is, is asking Congress for an antitrust exemption, they might be thinking that there's some weaknesses, that the, we'll say, the public perception of the NCAA might be changing a little bit. So for years, right, um, athletes probably should have gotten paid. Um, I don't, I don't, there's nothing really that, that changed on that front, but all of a sudden, California just threw together this legislation and passed bipartisan both houses. So, um, you know, you're only as strong as, as uh, your, your connections. And right now, across the country, there is bipartisan support for, um, we'll say, supporting student-athlete rights, and that's by giving them um, some type of compensation. So um, what's changed to allow um, these schools to unionize or have something that resembles a union? Nothing, really, other than that public support uh, is the kind of this tidal wave that's now behind these players. So. 18 months of delay um, from the NLRB to make a decision is not really that normal. But now this decision uh, are, is under the microscope. We all know that athletes are, student athletes are going to get paid. Uh, July, July 2021 is the earliest that's going to happen in Florida. But it's just a matter of time now. So 
nobody in the law wants to be overruled. No one wants to look uh, to be on the wrong side of the law. So now if that same question goes to the NLRB, they're going to say, well, in the next couple of years, it's going to be legal for athletes to get paid money. So maybe we don't want to be on the wrong side of this, of the athletes shouldn't have rights equation. So important to kind of, to kind of watch here. And we'll see if the next um, Northwestern comes along. Maybe this is the first domino. I don't, I don't think it's crazy to say that other conferences might adopt this approach. Because there are some things that do from the outside to somebody like me look very much like job requirements, things like um, essentially to me, a transfer rule in many ways, because the restrictions that coaches can put on the schools you're able to go to the year that you have to sit out basically in my business or in a lot of business, that'd be called a non-compete clause, which is an employment. It's it's also just a, it's just a wage restriction. It's, it's uh you know, it's, it's not, you know, I, I, I mean, you just got to call it when you see it. it's a wage restriction, it's a labor restriction. That's, that's what antitrust is. You know, you can't exert this much control over someone and, and these athletes have no, there is no right. There's no like, I mean, XFL is in the news today, but there's no like XFL that you could take your talents to. There is just the NCA and I'm like, that's it. So um, that's the type of activities that a monopoly, a monopolistic corporation is supposed to not be able to do, but the NCA has gotten away with it for years. And I think this is, um, they're starting to see uh, at least a, a route where they could get hit with antitrust, uh, you know, violations. So um, I, I think it's been a farce for a number of years, but how the NCA has gotten away with it. And, you know, just watching it from a high level, it looks like we're trending towards uh, the NCA giving up that power, just a matter of how much they have to give up. Speaking of farce, uh, the Major League Baseball season seems to me to have reached that point. Um, you know, you have teams staying in one place, playing the same team over and over again because they can't go to another series because the team is infected. It, the players seem, you know, just not really interested in following the guidelines. There can't, this really just can't keep going on. It's There's no real product now. It just seems like we're trying to just keep something on life support that is dying. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think it's, I don't want to say it's inevitable, but we're trending in that direction. I, and Dave, you, you follow me on social media. I just, I don't understand why Rob Bamford opens his mouth at this point. Um, he like, you know, just, and I don't, I don't mean to, to make light of it, but Roger Goodell has his own separate issues, right? He's not really that, that well thought of in the media, but, Roger Goodell knows, but there's a, I'll tell you just a, as a random aside, just for the sports fans, my dad grew up as a giant Willie Mays fan. Uh, he is a New York Giants fan. My dad's, uh, you know, then we, we followed San Francisco Giants as we got older, um, as he got older. So he got to play golf with Willie Mays uh, in probably around my dad's 40. So Willie was probably around 60. So my dad tells the story, um, you know, Willie was like lining up like a 250 foot, uh, like approach shot onto the green with like a four iron. And he like lands it on the green and he's like, you got to know your limitations. So my dad, <laughs> my dad tells that story a lot. So like he lands it on and my dad tries the same shot and, you know, he put it in the water. But the, the point being like, it's not an interesting kind of sports aside, but like Goodell knows that he's not really that good in front of the media. So mm-hmm. we never hear from Goodell ever. We just no. we see him in his basement clapping when draft picks happen. Great. Fantastic. Manfred does not know his limitations. I, I at this point, I, every time he speaks to the media, I'm like, how is he going to mess this up this time? And he just constantly lowers the bar to a point I didn't think was possible. So on Friday, he, he says to Tony Clark, which I respected, mm-hmm. I'm going to shut down the season unless you clean up the game. Um, 
I disagree that it was Tony Clark's responsibility, but I like the the threat. I thought that was um, a sign of force from our fearless leader, Manfred, who tends to to lack some force. So then within 24 hours, Rob Manfred said, well, we are playing. I'm not a quitter, um, and we're going to keep playing. It's not the right time to quit. So I'm sitting here. You just called your own bluff. No one was saying anything, and and you said this sign of strength. You go, whoa, 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 whoa. People were, were th- saying that, that my legacy was going to be tainted. Obviously, I couldn't cancel baseball at that point. Um, so I, I'm not confident in any stretch of the word that, that Manfred is, the, is, I don't know, is telling us what we need to know behind the scenes. I mean, there's a whole movement in, uh, you know, whatever side of the political sphere you're on that says that, you know, the tests that are out there are, you know, not, the, the numbers are impacted by the amount of tests you're having or the lack thereof. I don't really trust Rob Bamford at this point to tell us exactly the amount of positive tests in baseball. I really, jokes aside, I just, mm-hmm. I, I don't. I don't really think that it's, it's possible that this virus is solely contained between two teams and there's no one else in any other team that has it. Um, so, you know, baseball is a private entity, but if in, a, in a free market world, I would think it might make sense to have an independent uh, entity come in and, and really see what, what this looked like. Cause this point, I mean, uh, Rob Manfred has a lot of economic incentive to to not tell us the full story. And like in other countries where they've had baseball or where they are playing it, you're not seeing these types of outbreaks. So clearly, and we talked about this before too, baseball spent all this time BSing around the schedule and no time preparing for the actual logistics of keeping its players safe. The NFL is still very much in a similar situation because we hear coaches talking about the trust system for its players and keeping them safe. That cannot work. We have seen it in our society. So we're asking people who are no different than other people just because they're athletes doesn't mean they are not human beings. We're at, in society, we have people failing at this every day. So you're going to take a collection of 70 to 80 different people and trust them all to do the right thing? It makes no sense. You don't have the guidelines in place to do this uh, adequately. Do you know what I think is just kind of like objectively laughable? That after the season starts is when they start adjusting the playoff schedule. (laughs) After the season starts is when they decide, let's put an MLB COVID compliance officers. What is going on? Why, Why is this being instituted now? So I, you know, I think I just call it like I see it. The fact that you a week into the season decided, we need MLB compliance officers. Who are these compliance officers? Did you, did you have them on, on standby? Why are they just coming to play to bat now? And, and then I get, you know, I get kind of frustrated. Like at a certain point, to your point, Dave, what, what was baseball doing for 120 days? Were they just literally just sitting on their hands? I, I remember on a completely, you know, related concept, but like we were wondering what the Astros punishment was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, we were sitting on it for a while. And I remember Manfred said he was busy with the pandemic. He hasn't got around to figuring out exactly what the punishment was. So I'm like, okay, I don't know exactly what he's busy with, but you know, it's a pandemic. He's probably got to save baseball. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure the guy is pretty busy. Can't come up with the Astros punishment. I don't know what he was doing because he wasn't doing anything. I, I, they he, was didn't <laughs> he, he didn't punish the Astros. He didn't punish the Astros. He didn't come up with the proper safety protocol. He uh, maybe thought about a bubble. Maybe he said no to the bubble. That took up a lot of time. Um, but the whole thing is just a farce. I mean, Rob, Rob Manfred, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't find it particularly fun to, to point out how the leadership of baseball is no. completely lacking. But you got you to call it like you see it at this point. I, he, he just does not have his pulse on the game. And he's putting 
blame on Tony Clark. That's like, you know what I was, I was telling my wife the story or the analogy. It's like, if this principal of the school is putting blame on like the president of the student body, you're the principal <laughs> of the school. You control the, 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 the world that we live in. If you wanted a bubble, the bubble would have happened. Um, but you can't put the blame on Tony Clark and say, if you don't clean up the sport, Rob, you're at the very tippy top of the entire totem pole. The buck stops with you unless you don't view yourself as the leader of baseball, which I don't really either, Rob. And you've got the ear of every owner. So, yeah, that makes you are the most direct conduit between thoughts of the ownership and what the actual manifestation of the game should be. And like you say, you talk about this all these months. It's not like baseball is divided up into one silo. You have an office to deal with the medical issues. You have people who are supposed to take care of those things. You have finance people who are dealing with those things. You have schedulers who are dealing with those things. But it seems as if, yeah, they, them and the NFL, to a large extent, have still put those things, and the NCAA too, in the hands of anybody else who will take control of it rather than wanting to assume the responsibility of themselves. And I think ultimately that's going to be the separation between how we view an Adam Silver, how we even view a Gary Bettman, who is one of the most disliked commissioners in the history of sports. But if he runs through this and gets a successful season in the middle of a pandemic, he'll be, a complete, he'll be viewed a completely different way. And Major just, League just, Baseball and the NFL are ruining their, themselves. So sometimes, uh, you know, not, not that this is me, but if you don't know the answers to the test, you sit next to a smart individual and just copy all of theirs. Gary Bettman's just copying Adam Silver's plan at this point. I mean, it's not, not rocket science. Right. Um, and Manfred and I, and I, you know, I went on my little different media tours and I said NFL's in the catbird seat um, because they can sit back and watch what, what people do wrong and people do right. Um, but I had this crazy assumption that the NFL would actually uh, potentially maybe uh, listen to what people were doing wrong and, and make adjustments on the fly. I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing any, any conversations about bubbles. And I think baseball to the same extent didn't, didn't kind of heed warning to when uh, everyone else was moving to bubbles. Baseball said, yeah, we don't need that. We don't need to go to Arizona. We don't need to go to Florida. And now all of a sudden the, the, you know, um, if you just want to take, I don't know if you can take Manfred at, at face value, but he said to the extent that competitive integrity is, is called into the question, he's going to cancel the season, or at least that's on the table. And you have a team like the Phillies that hasn't played right in a week. Now the Cardinals aren't playing, uh, you know, the Marlins aren't playing. So you just have teams that have basically like an all-star break randomly in the middle of weeks. So is that competitive integrity? I would think so. I don't think it's, you know, it's not the end of the world if people have these week breaks, but at a certain point, like you're not heading in the right direction and the number of tests on the Cardinals is jumping and the Marlins is jumping and then they have the sneaking suspicion that there are positive tests on other teams that just would, would make a lot of sense, but that, has, that we don't know about yet. And I would imagine the same is going to happen for the NFL. And I would imagine the testing is going to be very inconsistent in its numbers as well. Um, before I let you go, I do want to think about this thing. We talked about antitrust. Um, do you think that there will be more challenges to the status uh, because we've seen Congress bring this up in the last few years, the status of the NFL, status of MLB. Um, do you think that there could be more challenges because of the way the leagues have handled these types of situations? On an antitrust level? I mean, the, the, the truth is this. I mean, 
there's a lot of things that that what leagues do in the probably the best example. I have this really good thread that I uh, sometimes keep as my pin tweet. But the NFL draft is technically an antitrust violation. Mm-hmm. Guys are leaving a school like Joe Burrow, and he's not being able to uh, be a free agent and negotiate whatever salary he wants. He's slotted into the Bengals, and they get to pick the the salary. There's no he's no leverage. That's technically uh, per se wage discrimination. Yes. Um, but uh, the way that these, uh, the, you know, the unions work, the leagues work, if the union agrees to what would otherwise be an antitrust exemption, you can allow that. Um, and there's other reasons that you would allow an NFL draft. Obviously, um, it probably keeps money up to a certain point. Um, but um, I don't, I think just when the way labor law works, um, Congress, uh, the legislature, if there is a union that's that is sufficient and it's sufficiently powerful, um, they're not going to be, uh, they're not going to be incentivized to go in and disrupt that. Um, I think the, the general rule of thumb is that employees and those at the head of uh, labor unions are in a better position to know what works for them other than these kind of outsiders, be it the Congress or, or the le- legislature. Now, that is completely different when it comes to the NCA because there is no, you know, there is no Rob, uh, you know, well, there's no Tony Clark, right? There is no uh, functional equivalent of, of one voice negotiating on behalf of the NCA. Right. So I, we are trending to a world where, uh, that you know, Congress and the Senate—they want to get their hands in this college football pie, um, and I—I I do see that. And I—I I mean, I don't see the you know Congress giving NCA this antitrust exemption. Um, and again, kind of to our earlier point, I think the tides are shifting. Whatever power the NCA had, uh, public sentiment and maybe people with political aspirations—they uh, don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Just as an observer, what do you think the next shoe to drop could potentially be? um in in college sports um just in the, in the landscape right now like where do you see the next fire popping up i mean it's i'm i'm just kind of watching and we didn't we didn't talk about this today mm-hmm. um you know uh they, there is at least a looming issue with football baseball the players can opt out whenever they want which i don't really know if i necessarily agree with i can make it both ways yo but it really shouldn't be allowed to opt out uh, on the morning of a game and not tell anyone during the game, but Major League Baseball, because Rob Manfred in his infinite wisdom didn't put any type of opt-out deadline on. Um, the NFL, and I've, I see it both ways, but the NFL put a deadline on it. They wanted to have that deadline be today, August 3rd, and then uh, for whatever reason, they uh, the players, they couldn't agree to an actual opt-out uh, deadline. So the deadline looks like it's going to be Thursday or Friday um, of this week. So I'm just kind of watching this. I mean, Lorenzo Cain, a really high-level player in baseball, mm-hmm. he, he played the first five games, and then he opted out. You went assess with this, played a couple games, and then he opted out. So if the NFL is watching what's going on in baseball, guys are playing and then opting out. So I'm watching this, this opt-out deadline very closely in the NFL. Um, you know, we're seeing more and more players, high-level players like C.J. Mosley are, are now kind of leaving. There's been eight New England Patriots. So this is kind of the level of, of carnage. I mean, the next – four or five days, we're going to see who's left standing. So I think that next shoe to drop, no, uh, football football's going to march on, but it's just a matter of who is there. So uh, we could see some very high-level players um, opting out if they're really going to make this hard deadline, um, you know, Thursday, Friday of this week. Dave, thank you so much, man. I think we covered some great ground here today. I appreciate it. I appreciate the insight as usual. Tell folks one more time how they can follow you and check your podcast. Uh, I'm at Sports Law Lust. Uh, I'm on Instagram. I'm also on Twitter. And the podcast is Conduct Detrimental. We talk about 
Um, you know, the way I try to say it's like if you if you watch Law and Order, you don't really have to be a lawyer. You just have to understand the, the legal concepts. But um, myself and my podcast partner, Dan Wallach, he's the legal analyst for uh, The Athletic. We just approach sports from a, uh, a legal side of it. So it's the same issues that you'll talk about with your friends, just kind of, um, we'll say the CBA, the negotiation uh, and that angle of it. So um, yeah, definitely give us a listen. And uh, if you just want to see uh, wrestling gifs, I'm also good for that on, on Twitter. Yeah, that, like I said, they do a great job of making it accessible. You don't have, like I said, it doesn't have to, you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be somebody who's well-versed in jargon. It's, it's easy to understand, but it's detailed. You will come we, out knowing more. We throw a wrestling reference, at least one in every show. And, and, and today, Dave, I mean, The Rock is part owner of the XFL. This is like my day. I'm just dunking everywhere. I mean, all over I, the place. I would love to see The Rock turn the XFL into the thing that challenges the NCAA in some regard. To say, I'm not focused on these 25-plus players, you know, uh, over that age and trying to, to create, recreate the NFL. What I'm going to do is I'm going after the high schoolers and I'm going to take those guys on, set up a summer football, play eight to 10 games in the summer, get them in school, you know, if they want to go to school and you, you usurp the NCAA in that way. And I guarantee, I, I would imagine, I can't guarantee, but I would imagine that there would be a lot of high level athletes at the high school level who would be very interested in getting paid right out of school knowing that they're going to get individualized instruction to prepare for being a pro football player rather than serving the interest of a college coach who may put them in a system that does not prepare them for the NFL. What is the football equivalent of the G League? I don't think we have one. That's what right? I'm saying. So be that. If you're that, and that to me is also the quickest way for The Rock to make a crap load more money back. Because if you do that well and you get those 18 to 25s and you start developing quarterbacks in particular because the NFL has a severe shortage of quarterbacks coming on the way, and you end up partnering as the minor league system of the NFL, no brainer. That, that money is there. That money is there. Vince McMahon invested $200 million into the XFL and uh, The Rock as well as uh, I think it's Redbird Capital purchased it at a bankruptcy for $15 million. Um, Dave, I don't know uh, if you're a wrestling fan, but uh, I would say that that price uh, is called hitting rock bottom. And uh, that's what Vince McMahon uh, might be getting from The Rock. rock Absolutely. Bottom. But I, I, think it's, I think it's fantastic because he was a college athlete. He knows what it's like to, to play on the fringes of professional football in Canada. Um, I think that he could actually bring something really great to this because the XFL, uh, you know, the thing that I think that always killed it was there was no reason to root for these teams. You know what I mean? Like you had no reason. You just drop these teams of players that I have no idea who they are in major cities. And that's just not going to fly with football fans. But if you have this thing where, oh, this is developmental in the summer when there's this big gap in football and baseball is currently kicking itself in the ass every day. Man, you have the real opportunity over the course of a summer every year to have the entire audience on you and make these young kids stars. Do you know, do you know who's not cool? Vince McMahon. Do you know who is very cool? The Rock. The, yes. Rock is, the Rock is the face that they needed. Um, and uh, I'm just going to say, the only reason that uh, the USFL died, how many years ago at this point, uh, 20, 30 years ago, is they competed against uh, the NFL. And there is... 
seemingly a market for a football, professional football league that doesn't go heads up with the NFL. I mean, XFL ratings were not terrible. And the AAF ratings two years ago were not terrible. So, you know, I, I bet on The Rock. Uh, and if you are betting against The Rock, I will call you a jabroni. <laughs> you've dropped that. You've dropped in just about everyone. You just didn't get in the people's elbow. And you didn't get in I'm the showing, I'm showing you my elbow. <laughs> the rock bottom is the best move, though, of the, of the ones that he did. The people's elbow could take a little bit long sometimes. You know. the, DD, the DDT set it up, though. I mean, I, I know a lot about wrestling. We haven't even gotten into this. No, no. We, look, and I'll take you all the way back to when it was really still fragmented. I can go that far back when it was Mid-South, NWA, all the, up, like, all the different wrestling alliances. That's when I came up. So the Von Erich brothers in Texas. And all, oh, so, yeah. But I, we, wrestling, we'll definitely have to talk wrestling at some point because there are certain legal ways we can tie that in as well because they're certainly looking for some unionization and legal protections there. So that would be a great conversation for another time, I'm sure. I think so, too. Dave, always an absolute pleasure coming on with you. Thank you so much, man. We'll talk again soon. Sounds good, my friend.